Welcome to 2024. With the 2024 election on the horizon, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, and numerous other foreign policy and domestic news stories, it's never been more important to stay informed. The DSR Network has you covered, with experts across all of these stories, to bring you the analysis and commentary of the stories that matter. Later this month, the DSR Network will introduce the TNR Daily, featuring Greg Sargent, formerly of the Washington Post, and a close friend of the show. Don't miss a moment of our coverage. Become a member of the DSR Network today. Members receive exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to attend DSR live events, a members-only Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. For the month of January, receive 50% off your first year of membership. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSR2024 at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSR2024. Thank you for your support. Nine, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of We're All Gonna Die Radio here on the Deep State Radio Network. Uh, I'm joined by my partner and co-host, Heather Williams. Good, Hello, Heather. Hi, John. How's it going? Uh, you know, I'm I'm still alive, so we're, we're doing alive. okay. Yay! We're alive. Yay! We, sh- we should start every week that way. Um, and uh, we're thrilled that everybody has joined us for yet another episode. And this is a really, really interesting one and very timely. Uh, this week, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, uh, founded by the Robert Oppenheimer and Manhattan Project scientists you all come to know and love through uh, the movies this year, um, released its annual Doomsday Clock. Um, This is an iconic uh, symbol of whether or not the world is moving closer or farther away from midnight. And we're joined by two people that have really tremendous insight into both the work of the bulletin, the clock itself, and quite frankly, the state of the world and how we're doing. Um, The first is Kinnett Benedict. Hello, Kinnett. Hello, John and Heather. Hi. Um, Kinnett is a former editor of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, and she's a lecturer at the Harris School at the University of Chicago. And she's been working on nuclear weapons and security issues for decades and decades, including at the MacArthur Foundation many years ago. Uh, And Daniel Holtz, who is a professor of physics at the University of Chicago, Um, not a nuclear weapons expert, but a expert on black holes. Uh, and gravitational waves, but also happens to be the chairman of the science and security board at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists uh, and helps set the clock. Uh, And full disclosure, I'm a member of that board. uh, And yes, I think Daniel does a really good job, which is why I invited him on. uh, And I'll also be serving in sort of this dual role as uh, interviewer and uh, and representative from the clock setter. So with that, I'm going to turn things over to Heather. Heather, over to you. 
Thanks, John. So, Daniel, I think we'll start with you. I'm kind of getting a bit of background about the clock and where it's at. Before we do that, though, I do want to say congratulations on what I heard was a fantastic rollout event. Uh, one of my colleagues went, and I understand Bill Nye was there, uh, which was um, very exciting. My colleague literally has been running around the office doing a little Bill Nye dance. He's so excited. So uh, it sounds like it was a, it was a great uh, great rollout, great event. But just to get us started, can you maybe say a little bit about what's the background of the bulletin and this clock and what led to the, the decision and how is the decision made that we are 90 seconds from midnight? Yeah, sure. So first, let me just say thanks for doing this. Thanks for having us on. And thanks for talking about Doomsday. It's, it's important. I think we're all on the same page there. So, yes. So we had our announcement on Tuesday. We announced the the kind of current setting, the current time of the doomsday clock. And I should start by saying it's 90 seconds to midnight. Um, that is the same time it was last year. And and our basic message is, um, so it's not in our assessment worse than last year, but it's not better than last year. And everyone needs to keep in mind that last year and this year at 90 seconds, it's the closest to midnight the clock has ever been. And so, you know, the take-home message is, this is not good. This is not where we want the clock to be. Um, and, and uh, you know, we, we need to kind of turn the clock back. Um, so that, that's the, the short version. Um, there is, you know, a much longer version where we can talk about the details. John is an expert on that as well. Uh, we've had lots of discussions um, over the course of the year. Uh, kind of wrestling with what's the state of the world, what's the state of civilization, uh, where are we headed, um, you know, where, where, you know, what have we accomplished over the last year, where are we falling short, and and the the kind of summary of all those discussions was we're at ninety seconds to minute. So I can. So things are bad. Things are really bad, and they're staying bad. Yes, exactly. See. Th- which is why we invited Daniel on. This is confirmation we are all going to die. So that, that this is perfect. Yes. It's all a matter of time scale, as usual. We are all <laughs> going to die. Um, but um, yeah, this is the ways we're worried about would prefer to avoid. Uh, can you say a bit about how you decide on on what is the proximity to midnight? I'm guessing that it is not a unilateral decision. Yeah. Well, it'd be so much easier if it was, you know, <laughs> we'd put John in charge and, and that would be it. Um, no, it's, uh, so there's this group called the Science and Security Board, and it consists of kind of scientists and experts, uh, a, a kind of range uh, of expertise from climate to nuclear, bio, uh, cyber, there's a, a real diversity. And, and we as I said, discuss the world, and we try to come to some sort of consensus. And and they're kind of subgroups, and so the nuclear group will get together. They kind of discuss amongst themselves. They'll write kind of a short report. Here's what we think is the state of the world. Here are the things that have gone better. Here are the things that have gone worse. This is what we're most concerned about. Here is, you know, what gives us hope. And we kind of go through that in all the different groups. We and then we we meet and we kind of hash it all out and try to come to some consensus. And and you know that process is quite involved. It's hard to compare these different risks, 
the nuclear risk looks very different from the climate risk, but we think both are existential risks. These are risks that could impact the future of civilization. And so we, we have to wrestle with them all and really try to wrap our minds around how things might play out um, and, and make our best assessment. And, and that's what we do. And so it's, it's, I think we all learn. I think, uh, you know, I think John feels the same way. It's fascinating. You have all these experts. They're, you know, unburdening themselves of what keeps them up at night. And you, you get real insight into, you know, what, what the issues are and how to think about them. And then you find these surprising connections between the different issues. And you kind of wrap that all together. And we ended up at 90 seconds to Okay. Daniel correctly makes it sound like free group therapy. Yeah. It's it's about yeah, it's pretty simple. That's right. It <laughs> often feels that way. It, l- let me turn to Kenneth for a second because one, I full disclosure, I'm on the board because Kenneth suggested my name several years ago. So I, I'm always deeply indebted to her being on the bulletin uh, board. The bulletin board. Um, it, it is one of the favorite things that I get to do in my life. But Kenneth, I wonder. You know, you've been doing this for a, a longer span than Daniel or I. Two questions. One, can you have ever imagined that, you know, in our uh, in our terms connected with the board, we'd be at 90 seconds to midnight? Like, do, do you find that shocking? Um, and two, having done this for a long time, you know, I'm I'm hit a lot by people who criticize the clock. They, they, they don't like it. They, they think it's a bad metaphor. They think it's just grandstanding. They think it's alarmist. So I, I wonder whether over time you've come to have a, a better appreciation, a different appreciation for the clock and the role that it, it serves. Yeah, the first question is, uh, is, uh, is actually a difficult one. Um, do I find it shocking? Um, given the fact that the closest it was ever to midnight in the years past was two minutes to midnight when the United States and, and Soviet Union had uh, detonated their hydrogen bombs within about six months of each other. Um, that time, although it seems difficult, it seemed difficult at the time, and there were no arms control treaties, there was no real communication between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, seemed like a very perilous moment and the beginning of, some said, the nuclear age. Um, the fact that it was two minutes to midnight then um, gives you a sense, though, of how much more difficult the situation has become. Many more countries with nu- more countries with nuclear weapons, and uh, right now, uh, they're really the nuclear order is disintegrating. It seems, and so it's a very difficult time. And I'm really not shocked that it's at 90 seconds to midnight. I confess, I was. A little perturbed when the board decided they would go to seconds rather than minutes. (laughs) But I think given that you've done that, I think it gives you a little bit more uh, room to, to, um, I guess, bring people to the knowledge that it's really alarming. And it's seconds is different from minutes. And it's, uh, it's for, it's for a good cause because it is really a very difficult time. and, and when we added climate change, climate uh, crisis to the deliberations about the clock in 2007, we got a lot of pushback about that. But I think, um, I think it's fair to say that these two are certainly 
presenting existential threats to civilization. And um, someone once asked me, well, how do you, you know, you have both of these things. How do you think about them in terms of time scale? And one of our readers wrote and saved me at one point and said, well, um, it's really like standing around in a burning house and wondering whether you're going to die from smoke inhalation or from a falling timber. So it, yeah, they're both going, they're both here. They both can be really devastating. Uh, so let's get on with it and let's do something about it. It's really the message. Um, the clock. I hope, yes. I hope that person. I hope that person is a listener to "We're All Gonna Die" radio. He's our prime audience. Yeah, right. Um, I think um, the clock. I think was one of the most brilliant communication devices of the 20, 20th century, and maybe it will be of the twenty first century. Um, it's a remarkable device, and the fact that it was just kind of devised by Martil Langsdorff, who was a landscape artist, who was married to one of the physicists who was at the University of Chicago. And she just kind of asked was, was asked to do a design for the cover of the new magazine, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. And, and as she was listening, she was in on all the discussions, by the way, of the, uh, the state of the world right after Hiroshima and Nagasaki and after the end of the Second World War. And the, the conversations at the University of Chicago were extraordinarily intense. These were people who'd worked on the bomb. They were just uh, beside themselves, really, with the destruction of it. They knew about it firsthand. And they were really trying to uh, figure out how to communicate to the broad public about the dangers of this new technology. Um, there were constant conversations. There was a conference in November uh, funded by then the president of the university. And her so her sense of the urgency of it, she played around with the uranium symbols and all sorts of stuff, but the urgency was what she what came to her. Um, so is it alarmist? Um, I don't think so. And it's a terrific way of communicating to a really broad public. It's not in any language. It's not in English. Russian anything it's in it's in time a kind of universal symbol and um, I think it really is meant to convey to people uh, how drastic the situation is I think the people who who off that I hear who criticize it are often people who are kind of experts and who maybe even think the public shouldn't be in, so involved so um, but I think many people understand, and especially outside the United States, they do understand what it means. And it's, uh, uh, I think they take it seriously. Kina, if I can jump in, you said something I think is really fascinating about the clock and how you calculate where it's at. It's not just about the threats. It's not just about the changing threat landscape. It's also about the breakdown of guardrails and institutions and mechanisms that in the past we really relied on to manage some of those risks. And I mean, just in the nuclear space alone, we've seen this breakdown of arms control agreements. Just last week, Russia rejected the latest kind of framework proposal from the United States. Russia has de-ratified the test ban treaty. They've suspended participation in New START. And so I, I think that that's also a really important part of this message. It's that, you know, it's not just a responsibility of what you 
do with threats. It's a responsibility for management and having some of those guardrails in place. And with that in mind, I was wondering if maybe maybe go to you first, Kenna, and then to Daniel, if you could say a bit more about what you hope the clock achieves, that I, I you're quite right, it's going to reach a wide audience. And it really is a clever communication device. When it reaches those wide audiences, is the hope that you know, a more diverse group of the public will get involved in nuclear issues? Is it intended as an activism tool? Uh, or, you know, because this is something within the nuclear space, I think we talk about a lot, which is how do we make the public care about nuclear issues? Because we also want members of Congress to care and they don't seem to most of the time. Uh, and so if you all, if you all have tips for how we can get the public and members of Congress to care about things like Russia de-ratifying CTBT. Uh, we're all ears. But yeah, can I, if I can go to you first, it'd be great to hear what your hope is for the clock in that sense. Well, I think, yes, the clock is meant to reach a broad audience and it's meant to help people understand the threats. And often the messages and the statements is we can do things. And the wonderful part about um, having uh, Nye, Bill Nye on at, with Daniel, which was a brilliant piece this time of the communications rollout, uh, was uh, exactly that, that they said, you've got to pay attention. And these are really important. They have much to do with your own existence. Nuclear weapons aren't going to just hit Washington, D.C. Uh, they're going to hit every place. Uh, and it's going to be pretty much a disaster. So vote. I love he just kind of kept saying vote. And that's true in this country. That's part of what we can do. The times when we've seen um, progress on arms control and disarmament have been times when the public gets involved uh, in the 1950s and 60s uh, to help bring about the, the first test ban treaty. The 1980s, uh, the, you know, huge demonstrations in New York and Central Park. And those were the times that seemed to move the needle. And so uh, I think that's important that people understand that, yes, when citizens get involved, leaders pay attention and they're paying attention to public opinion as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the problem with nuclear weapons, which I know about more than climate change, is that these are state secrets. They're meant to be kept from the public. And so experts like you and John and others in the nuclear security community do a terrific job of trying to um, analyze and provide uh, information to a broader public. And that's part of the role of the bulletin, the magazine itself. Um, it's this, what I call the democratic determination of the atomic scientists. They really wanted the public to know about this stuff and, and assume that an aroused public and an informed public would begin to make their voices heard and help congressional members understand what their responsibility is to their country and to the citizens that they represent. Daniel, did you want to add anything to that? It's always hard to follow. Um, I, I do think that you know, that is the, the, the essential point, which is um, you know, the public is a major part of this discussion. Uh, if we had the silver bullet, like, here's the thing to do, I mean, we would be doing it. So I think part of what we're trying is, it's kind of the kitchen sink approach, which I think all of us are doing, which is, we're alarmed, we have to do what we can. 
Um, one great thing about the clock, as has been mentioned, is it's 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 sort of this visceral symbol that we many people respond to. Um, the way we think about it is not that we set the clock and that kind of that's it. This is the right time. No more discussion. Now go go do the thing. Part of what we're trying to do is is engender debate, engender discussion. You know, is this? You could argue, no, no, the clock should be closer to midnight or five. Terrific. I mean, this is a difficult thing. We're struggling with it. Let us know why. Why do you think it's the wrong time? Let's have a discussion. Maybe you could discuss with your family, with your friends, go on social media. Just this is important. We should all be discussing this issue. That's the one thing I think we can all agree. And the more people that are becoming aware and discussing it, the more likely they are to pressure their representatives uh, to to do the right thing, to take these issues seriously, uh, as seriously as they should. There's always the short-term thinking. This, These kind of risks require a much broader view. And, and, and the only way to kind of change that discussion, we think, or one of the ways, is to get the public engaged. And so that's, that's part of our goal. Now, whether we're effective or not, I mean, we, we want feedback. Maybe there are other things we should be doing. Maybe we should change the clock. But what would we change it to? Is, there are lots of questions there, but that's the goal. John, please. I- so, well, well, don't tempt me on this, Daniel. So Daniel knows that I have this little pet idea. So I, I, I'm always thinking about how can I get something good out of this process. So when I first joined the board, I suggested that they go to either Tag Heuer um, or Omega and get them to sponsor the clock because when, when every second counts – Right, you want it accurate, and they make these really beautiful uh, analog combo digital watches. You can even go to like one of the old Monaco watches that have multi, and then of course we all get free watches out of it. So you know, but uh, that that reject that idea was rejected as somehow materialistic, and I, I don't understand. Um, it, it's a it's a great point I wanted to build on Heather and both Kinnett and Daniel. I think we all think similarly on this, and working at the Federation of American Scientists, which publishes in the bulletin the nuclear notebook, which is the best. Uh, objective, non-governmental insights into how many nuclear weapons are in different countries, how much is being spent, how they're deployed. Um, This is really the big debate at the origin, even during the Manhattan Project itself. Open science and international access to information and classification. Most people don't know that the U.S. classification system was born out of the Manhattan Project. Beforehand, there was no secret, top secret, classified, restricted data. Like it all was built out of that. Um, and uh, it, if you don't think these are current debates, uh, you should really look at a couple of things going on in Congress right now. So, for example, uh, we're, if you don't know, we're building a brand new long range intercontinental uh, ballistic missile called the Sentinel. Uh, and it's uh, going to cost about $130 billion. Uh, over the next 30 years. Now, the problem is originally it was slated to cost $66 billion. And because it is so expensive, the Secretary of Defense now has to certify that there's no alternative to the system. Of course, the analysis of alternatives that was done by the U.S. government in 2015 has never been released. So the public can't assess whether there are alternatives because that information is classified. Second uh, nod to classification is uh, another modernization program is the B-21 Raider uh, long-range bomber, both conventional and nuclear, to replace the B-2, the B-1, and the B-52. And a lot of people think this is a necessary system. Uh, Do you want to know how much it costs? Heather, do you know how much the system costs? No. Tell me, John. You know why you don't know how much the system costs? 
Because it's classified. Because John McCain, before he died, <laughs> said that this system should be classified because we don't want our adversaries to know how much we're spending. But, but of John, course, are you saying you disagree with that? It, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna break with the deep state radio construct because uh, we sometimes we do like to operate in shadows. But in this case, there is no legal justification for the bomber to be classified. Um, in fact, U.S. law says that it can only be classified if it will do significant damage to U.S. national security to have that information in the public. The default should be to unclassification. And so uh, the idea that we don't know how much this bomber, which is upwards of $100 billion at last public estimate, uh, is going to cost and how much it's increasing gets again to this problem of, you know, how much transparency should we inject into this? Um, we don't expect that the bulletin by releasing the clock is going to get people to march in the streets and demand how much does it cost. But I think there is an element here of the engaged public that really, for better or worse, for 90 seconds or two minutes or that we're even, you know, within this hour of midnight, you know, uh, it, it should be something that the public goes, huh, maybe we don't have to live like this. And, um, you know, it, that's both true on climate it's particularly true on nuclear. Uh, and, and then I want to turn, I don't want to grandstand the whole thing, uh, you know, turn for a, a second just to Daniel, and then we're going to take a quick break, um, is to also talk about the fact that we have included disruptive technology. And this is really the year where AI broke into the public consciousness in a way. I wonder, in just a minute or two, Daniel, if you can just sort of reflect on how those discussions went inside the, the board deliberations this year uh, and what's been said about it. Yeah. So that's an important point, which is, um, you know, of the threats, uh, the sort of newest threat that we've been worried about now for a few years is, is uh, you know, under we have this big bucket called disruptive technologies. And within it, one threat has been what sort of cyber information warfare or disinformation, misinformation, kind of the, the compromising of the information ecosystem. And, and uh, in the last year, one of the major things that's happened is AI, which kind of turbocharges this and comp I think has, it's kind of this awareness now within the public that, that uh, w what you read, what you see uh, uh, can be completely arbitrary. It may have no connection to reality whatsoever. Um, that's extremely concerning for us. Uh, the the one of the things that we kind of you know our stock and trade is is that there is a real world out there that you can have people that study the world and come up with you know statements that are true about the world and then we can kind of make rational decisions based on that and if our agreed you know sort of truths about the world you know what is the temperature out right now. If we can't agree on something so basic as that, um, it's very hard to make progress. And so we're increasingly concerned that, for example, misinformation, disinformation will compromise our ability to deal with all the threats. And, and I think there's lots of evidence that's that's starting to happen. Then there are other things. There's, you know, pandemics, of course, but there's also kind of deliberate bioweapons and, and AI now enables uh, individuals to create new weapons with very little expertise, because uh, if you know what you're doing with a large language model, you can actually get an incredible amount of information out of it. Um, and it's very hard, again, to set up the guardrails around that. So there, there are lots of things to be concerned with there. Um, 
within the board, as John was alluding to, there's still a lot of discussion about whether AI itself is an existential threat. And over the last few years, and especially the last year, a number of the people developing AI have come out to say, we're terrified of the technology we're developing. We think it's an existential threat. What we're doing, you know, people have said, what I've been working on for my entire career, I, I, I'm terrified. I don't think this should be done. Everyone should stop. And, and that, I think, particularly you know, resonates with us because the whole point of the bulletin was that scientists that were working on the Manhattan Project were concerned about what they had developed and what it meant for the future of civilization. Now we have a bunch of scientists working on a brand new, you know, disruptive technology that's for sure going to change the world in ways that are, you know, some are anticipated, some completely unanticipated. They're warning us, some of them, that this could be a disaster. It's very hard to evaluate that because no one really knows what's going to happen. The pace it's sort of this exponential growth in the capabilities of these systems. People are extrapolating out and it's dangerous to extrapolate. We don't really know. I think that's a fair statement, but the kind of tail risks are significant. What we do with that, how do we balance that? We're not sure. What we have to do is talk about it, discuss it, study it, and and build awareness so that we don't stumble into something um, and end up ending civilization that way. And so it's, it's been a very vigorous discussion, as John knows. So I, I can assure you, one, that I am not a deep fake. Uh, I, I am not uh, a large language model. That's actually. just what a deep fake would say. I'm just saying. <laughs> so. See, that's just what a deep fake would say to try to disprove that I'm not a deep fake. Uh, but if you want to keep listening to real people, I can help you on this. So I'm a real person. Heather's a real person. I'm pretty sure about Daniel. Uh but this is the part on We're All Gonna Die Radio where we take a short break and we have to say goodbye to people that are not subscribers. The good news is you can prove you're a real person by going online to deepstateradio.com and becoming a subscriber. Um, for $5, you can prove that you are a, a conscious entity uh, and you will gain access not only to the rest of our discussions today and future discussions, but the rest of the Deep State Radio constellation of podcasts, which are excellent and cover a wide variety of issues in national security, foreign affairs, domestic policy. I highly recommend it. You're here because you know a little bit about us, but think about joining. Uh, for those of you that are paid subscribers, bear with us for a minute. We're going to take a short break. And for those that aren't, and for whatever reason have decided that they don't want to prove their uh, existence, uh, we have to say goodbye, uh, but we hope you'll tune in again uh, in future weeks. So uh, goodbye to our unpaid subscribers and hold on for our paid subscribers.